Welcome to the Wretched Hive Podcast. I got a bad feeling about this. Moss Eisley Spaceport. What are you talking about? You will never find the more wretched hive of scum and villainy. This is ridiculous. We must be cautious. Actually, we're just a bunch of guys talking about Star Wars and other stuff. I'm looking forward to having some real talk with some real folks. That's good news. I like the sound of that. Welcome to another episode of the Wretched Hive Podcast. My name is Steve Baldwin, and joining me as always, lifelong Star Wars fan, Scott Ivansky. Scott, how are you? I'm great, Steve. Thanks for having me here. I'm so excited about today. Uh, We got something really special for you all, so let's just get right into it. Let's do it. I am so honored to have this man on our show. Uh, Also, I would venture to say, is another lifelong Star Wars fan, (laughs) maybe the lifelong Star Wars fan, Mr. Steve Sansweet, president and CEO of Rancho Obi-Wan. Steve, thank you so much for coming on the Wretched Hive podcast. My pleasure, guys. Steve, this has been uh, a couple of years in the making. I had the opportunity to visit Rancho Obi-Wan a few years ago, and you were so kind to my family um, when we went up. And I I just have to thank you for everything that you do for the fan community. And Rancho Obi-Wan is amazing. I just have to start with that. Thank you for everything. Well, thanks. I appreciate that. We we put a lot of time and effort and energy into making Rancho Obi-Wan accessible in normal times and something that the fans would really love because I'm a fan myself. So I, I know what fans like. Steve, I, I definitely we're going to talk a lot about Star Wars, obviously. Uh, but I wanted to start with um, a little a little bit about your career before Star Wars. You you had a a thriving career in journalism. Um, I believe you went to Temple University. Were you there? And did you cover the Kennedy assassination? I read something about that. Well, yeah, I went to Temple from 1962 to 1966, so I was there when JFK was assassinated, and I can I can remember being out on the mall and hearing the news and rushing back to the Temple News headquarters. Temple News at that point was a four-day-a-week print publication, and um, and being part of the staff that put out an extra on the assassination, it was... Uh, quite a shock and uh, and was one of the highlights lowlights of my time at Temple University uh, no I, I imagine it would be um, what was it like being a, a journalist in in the 60s and 70s there's so much political upheaval and you must have you must have seen and, and covered so much well I was a reporter initially for the Philadelphia Inquirer and I started out in my uh, between my junior and senior year as an intern and so I was a police reporter for the summer and one of the things I covered as a police reporter was a uh, a protest that turned into a near riot um, mostly black people um, protesting the admissions policy of uh, an institution called Girard College, which was uh, for um, impoverished people to get an education. But it was at that point in Philadelphia in the mid-60s, all white. Um, and so, uh, you know, we've come a long way and not a long way in 
in the last 50 years. It's just looking back in our lifetimes and we've seen such repression and um, and it seems to be repeating itself these days. Um, my career as a newspaper reporter just covered all kinds of different topics and things, but I was uh, I was uh, aw- awakened to the world of protest very early. Wow, I, I was I was about to say that. Well, protests about institutional racism uh, that sounds familiar. Um, it sure does, unfortunately. <laughs> Yeah, it's amazing how much and how little things have changed in in 50 years. Yeah, it's it's crazy. Um, so, how did your career in journalism then prepare you to to take on this second career? I'm I'm fascinated at and just looking a little bit at your bio. You know, you you reached what some might consider sort of like the height of a career in journalism. You were bureau chief for a, a major publication, the Wall Street Journal, in the, the country's second largest market in Los Angeles. And you you decided to give that up and follow your passion, which is Star Wars. Can you talk about that? And, and what were some of the decisions and your thought process during that time? It was all Joseph Campbell's fault, the amazing, <laughs> amazing uh, 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 person who really brought mythology to the college level. And um, he said, follow your bliss. And uh, that's been sort of uh, my uh, my North Star for many, many years. Um, my career as a journalist was great. I, I was at the Wall Street Journal for 26 years, the last nine of those bureau chief in Los Angeles, and I covered everything from the movie business to um, civil rights of mental patients to the aerospace business to savings and loans in institutions when there used to be those before they all collapsed. Um, and so it was a it was a, a wonderful place to get started. And um, I wrote a story for the front page of the journal on uh, aversion therapy, which was used at the time in the 70s and into the 80s for controlling, trying to control smoking and drinking and you know other nasty habits. And um, I got a call from a publisher who said we would you be interested in writing a book about aversion therapy? And one thing led to another. I thought I would never get another chance to write a book again. So I did a book called The Punishment Cure, which was based on all these conditioning experiments where, you know, they pile up burnt cigarettes and, and you smell them in a small room and you supposedly get averse to smoking and uh, the same thing with drinking. You get a drug that makes you nauseous. I mean, it was terrible stuff. Oh. The publisher thought it was going to be a self-help book. <laughs> so <laughs> that didn't work out too well. It quickly ended up on the remainder tables, but at least I had a book out there. Little did I know I would go on to write 17 Star Wars books. Um, so, uh, but, uh, tradition. yeah. <laughs> and, and, and yes, you're, you're holding up one of them that I can see. Yep. Um, yeah. But, but in in the early 90s, the uh, when very little was happening as far as Star Wars was concerned, um, I the heard through times. the grapevine, yeah, the dark <laughs> times, I heard through the grapevine that Lucasfilm was restarting its publishing division, which had been active around the time of the original trilogy movies, 
and that they were interested in doing a Star Wars price guide. And so I cold called um, the uh, head of publishing at Lucasfilm in Northern California. I was in L.A. at the time and said, if anybody writes that book, it should be me. And she said, and you would be who? <laughs> and um, one thing led to another. And she said she wanted a price guide with anecdotes. And I sort of said, you really can't have a price guide with anecdotes how about a price guide and then a separate book that's anecdotal and that led to my first star wars book while i was still at the journal uh star wars from concept to screen to collectible which was really the first book that was out there that told how star wars went from an idea in george's mind to how they translated it to the screen to then how that provoked uh this flood of merchandising which really changed so many industries, it changed the movie industry, it changed the licensing industry. It was really the beginning of licensing of motion pictures, the successful licensing of motion pictures. And so I started working more with Lucasfilm. I started doing QVC, uh, Star Wars uh, Spectacular uh, TV shows. I did 50 hours of QVC between 1994 and 1999. Wow. Um, flying back to Philadelphia four or five times a year and doing these two-hour nighttime specials where they would come up with collectible stuff. Um, and it was, uh, it was fascinating. I, I did uh, um, uh, other books came along, and um, I did two pro price guides, the Tomark price guides with uh, T.N. Tunbush. Um, and... Uh, it was off to the races. Wow. And then I got a call in 1995. I had been bureau chief. I ended up being bureau chief for nine years. The normal time to be a bureau chief was three to four. Mm. And, um, and so they were pushing, well, we have to open this up. We need to give other people a chance. And they offered me all kinds of other opportunities at the journal, go back to New York, become a, an editor, become a super reporter in L.A., open up a, uh, a regional edition of the journal. Um, and uh, I got a call from Lucasfilm at the time with, from somebody I really knew well, the head of publicity. Um, and uh, I had worked with her back in 1987 um, to do uh, an interview with George Lucas for an op-edit in the Wall Street Journal on the 10th anniversary of, uh, of Star Wars. And then I knew this woman, Lynn Hale, through writing my other books and being up at Lucasfilm a bunch to do research on the books. And um, she said, Steve, we wonder if you know of anybody who might like to do, we need somebody to do a one-year only job. It's guaranteed it's only going to last a year. And um, and we want somebody to go out there and go around to do maybe eight to ten fan conventions and talk about the special editions. So it would be somebody doing these events in 1996. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, let's talk. And uh, that's where Joseph Campbell kept uh, kept intruding in my thoughts. Follow your bliss. Follow your bliss. And. Um, and I accepted this one-year-only job for a salary that was uh, less than half I was making at the Journal. And, um, and they just forgot to uh, get rid of me for 15 years. So uh, 
<laughs> One thing led to another. I did more than 40 conventions instead of the 8 to 10 that I was supposed to do. And then I started doing some international conventions. I had already been to Australia on my own uh, as a convention guest because of my collection and, um, and, the, and the first book. And um, we went from there. Just uh, another reason I accepted the job was because I was starting to work on the Star Wars Encyclopedia, the first one, the one volume edition. And I did most of that by myself. And I was struggling with it. It was a lot more work than Lucasfilm had let on that it would be. And so I thought, well, if I do this job, then I can go, I can leave on a Friday, go out, do a convention on the weekend, come back on Sunday or Monday, and then work on the encyclopedia, which is what I ended up doing because I still stayed in Southern California and worked, worked out of my house. So uh, it, it was all good, but it was quite a leap of faith. So one year that grew into a, a 16 year stay uh, or so. Um, 15 years altogether. 15 years. Were you also writing for Star Wars Insider or contributing to Star Wars Insider while you were in that role? Or was that before while you were at the journal? How did Scott's a big collector of Star Wars Insider. So we said, so, yeah, I, 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 I did the uh, Scouting the Galaxy column for many years for Insider. I don't even remember when it began, but it was uh, it was while I was at the journal, certainly. And it was six to eight times a year. Um, and it was answering people's questions about Star Wars collectibles and then writing some, you know, it was, uh, it was a fun column to do because I would get these uh, handwritten letters or these block printed letters from seven-year-olds. I just bought a fill-in-the-blank. How much is it worth? <laughs> <laughs> Whatever you paid for it, kid. <laughs> Whatever you paid for it. Steve, willing I think buyer, willing seller. I think I remember back reading those. Um, I think at some point you put a little disclaimer. You're like, I will not answer anything about value anymore. We're just going <laughs> to. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it got to the point where people were writing in. And, and, and basically, and when people contact me today and ask me values of things, I say, look at the closed auctions on eBay. Or if it's a poster, look at emovieposter.com. I mean, there are places out there. It changes so fast. That's why price guys are really not good for anything except letting you know what was produced. Yeah. I mean, they're still good for that and the photographs and things of that nature. But as far as prices, no. On a personal note, out of all the, the body of work, your books that you've published over the years, I still have my all-time favorite. And I just had to hold it up here real quick. This is still one of my go-to fun books. Uh, the Action Figure Archive. Yes. Yeah, that was a that was a, a great book. That was a lot of fun because we were able to. There weren't that many figures that were out. I mean, it was really focused on the original trilogy figures, so we could put all of the creatures and the vehicles and everything else, carded figures. Yep. Um, you know, it was uh, it was a fun project to do. It was a version of a project that had been done in Japan. Um, that uh, Lucasfilm, the publishing uh, people at the time, didn't think would be uh, that, that exciting to produce in the U.S., but once they saw it, they thought, oh, wait a second, maybe we were wrong about that. Uh, Steve, would you like to do something on that? And I had worked with the guys in Japan. Uh, uh, they, had, uh, they had flown over to Los Angeles, and they spent a lot of time photographing my collection, 
and I would find them sometimes in the morning. They would stay, they stayed over the house, and I would find them in the morning, like sleeping on the floor of my Star Wars room, uh, because they had stayed <laughs> up all night until they finally fell asleep. So, I want to sleep uh, in your Star Wars room. Are you kidding? <laughs> a second? Well, we um, thought about having nighttime tours, but uh, yeah, no, I don't think so. <laughs> uh, what so? With your so you were director of fan relations, and before we move on to talking more about Rancho, I, I have to ask. So you also held the title of director of content management. Right. So can you talk a little bit about what that what your role was there? We had a uh, an extensive uh, photo database, a, a digital photo database uh, that that really encompassed the all of the photos from the original trilogy. Um, we had a whole department that was that was in charge of this digital photo archive and a special Lucasfilm produced system that um, that we used to access and and collate the system, uh, the, the photos. And as the prequels came along and first the special editions, but then the prequels, the new photos were added. And it was one of my jobs to work with uh, publicity and licensing and come and and uh, starwars.com and come up with uh, a strategy on when to release photos and what photos to different audiences like to starwars.com to the insider to um, genre magazines uh, and and then information about new planets and without giving anything away about the movies. But uh, there was a long lead up because we had these on set photos that had been taken. And then we had the film frame outs as ILM started working and started adding digital effects to the film frame outs, adding a lightsaber, adding some other special visual effects to the photo. Then we had those to work with too. So it was a it was working with all of these different departments and the external publicity department. Yeah, I, you know, I remember the prequels. Um, certainly, the archive part of that. One of the things I found most fascinating as a fan was the the marketing aspect of how um, each prequel had these great buildups. I don't know where that started. If that came down from George, but. At some point, I remember, you know, on a weekly or bi-weekly basis, photos were being released or even right. manipulated, almost like a guessing game, like a scavenger hunt of some sort. And I had so much fun as a fan, you know, downloading the photos, trying to figure out what was going on, getting really excited for the new movies. So I, if that was one of the aspects that you were involved in, I totally loved all that. <laughs> Yeah, that I was involved in that, and that was the actually the, the the very specific project that you talked about, the special photos and the, that were manipulated, and you try to figure out what the hell was going on there. That was totally George's <laughs> idea, and George in fact cool. picked those photos, and he was looking for, you know, not what it was, but what it looked like, and the visual image and and the excitement that the visual image could cause or um, the fun that people would get trying to figure out what it was. Yeah, I think I remembered one specifically. I know Attack of the Clones had it, but that whole concept was just, it to me was like a, a fun game that just added to the anticipation. And I, right. I enjoy that. I'm, plus, I'm a photographer, so I love seeing how that works. So well, I, we even put out a poster using a lot of those images for the celebration that followed for the celebration that came out on the release of uh, 
uh, episode two. Nice. Nice. That's actually a perfect segue. I, I did want to ask about your experiences with Celebration. Uh, were you involved with Dan Madsen in the early days and, and getting Celebration rolling? Oh, yes. I was there when we put together a list of about 100 names for what we could call the damn thing. We almost <laughs> went with FanFest. Um, but, um, but Dan Madsen and uh, John Bradley Snyder, who was the uh, managing editor and then the editor of Star Wars Insider, and Dan was the publisher and owner of Fantastic Media. Dan is such a great guy and still a very good friend. Um, and um, uh, it was uh, something that my boss at Lucasfilm, Jim Ward, the head of marketing, said, well, let's put together... Can we do some sort of fan festival in five cities uh, on the same weekend? Oh wow! Before the opening of the movie, and I said, uh, Jim, that would not only be challenging, that would be impossible. And he said, Well, how about if we did five weekends in a row? And I said, Well, how about if we do one fan convention? Jim wasn't that up on what the whole fan convention community was like. Oh, he had never been to San Diego Comic-Con, so he had never really understood that people will come in from around the country and in many cases around the world to attend something if there's enough interest and there's enough excitement and you, there's enough content um, yeah. that, that makes it exciting. And so the fan club was coming up with, uh, separately, the, the Star Wars fan club, which was part of uh, Star Wars Insider, was coming up with its own idea of maybe we can do a convention. And so we started talking together. So Dan and I and John and Anthony Daniels at the end, who came in early to work on that in, uh, in Denver, um, put together Celebration One. Wow. And we went from there. Although God knows that during Celebration 1, I had my doubts as to whether there would ever be a Celebration 2. Was that the one that was flooded? That uh, was the one that had 50-year rains in Denver. And we were at a former Air Force base um, that was all earth. And so everything got muddy, and the 50-year rains came down. And because there weren't many buildings except for the Air and Space Museum where we had the, the um, an X-Wing and we had uh, props from the archives and the merchandise and things like that, the entertainment and the dealer's rooms were giant tents. Oh. And when you get 50-year rains, even the best tents tend to start leaking. Oh. And so... Uh, you know, I would get calls from my boss. I would be trying to do an event, and I would get a call on the radio. Steve, tent two is leaking. And I'm like, what am I going to do? Climb up to the top and put a patch on it? So uh, oh, that was gosh. that was challenging, but uh, it worked out. And the fans who were there, despite them getting wet, and the dealers who were there, despite some of their merchandise getting wet, um, loved it. In the end, we survived Celebration 1 and went on to uh, to have celebrations, uh, uh, a lot of celebrations. Yeah, oh, yeah. well, I, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm holding my breath for the next one, um, that, it, that we're in the clear by then. I, I went ahead and kicked my tickets forward. You know, you could ask for a refund or to just right. to pay them forward to the next one. I, and I just did that, pay them forward to two years. So hopefully by then we'll have another one in Anaheim and, and we'll see Rancho Obi-Wan and everyone else down here in Southern California. 
We certainly hope so. We had planned to do a 40th anniversary of uh, Empire Strikes Back for our Rancho exhibition. And um, instead, we did a, a two-day, uh, one-hour piece uh, live stream on what we were going to bring to uh, celebration. And that live stream is still available at RanchoObiWan.org. Um, it's now obviously now recorded, but uh, you can see that uh, at no charge. Yeah, you, you and Anne were fantastic on that. It was a I- lot of fun. I loved how you were both sort of like, we've never done this before. We're holding up our camera. You're doing it from one of your cell phones. It was very just um, extemporaneous and it it, it played great. And it's a really cool way to see the museum because when I was there, you know, you walk down the main aisle and there's these, there's shelves and you can't see behind the shelves and you want to go, I want to go around the shelf and see what's around the shelf. And you guys did that a little bit. You kind of pulled, walked around to the other side, which was cool. Yeah. yeah, no, it was a lot of fun. fun. Yeah. Apologies, so, uh, my, my animals are part of the show, Steve. That's okay. <laughs> Sorry. They jump in and, and make some comments every once in a while. We've had animals on the show before, and they're not your cats. Um, Steve, in, in 20, let's talk a little bit more about Rancho Obi-Wan. Um, it, it's such a special place, and it, it's actually been recognized by the Guinness Book of World Records in, in 2014. Uh, in the 2014 edition of the Guinness Book of World's Records, Rancho Obi-Wan is certified as the largest collection of Star Wars memorabilia with more than 300,000 individual and unique items. And I imagine you've added quite a bit since then. Do you have any sense for what how many items there are now? Well, in order to get into the Guinness Book, and they approached us. We, had, we never approached oh, them, but they approached okay. us and said, you know, we see so much about Rancho Obi-Wan and, um, you know, Star Wars is getting exciting again and new movies are coming out. And uh, we'd like to vet your collection. Um, we need an inventory list. At that point, the inventory list only had about 94,000 items on it. But we said, well, we've got about 300,000 items. And um, the head of Guinness Books from the UK uh Craig Glenday came out himself because he's a huge Star Wars fan and brought a photographer out and looked through the museum and said, okay, I believe you have about 300,000 items. Um, I don't have to count them myself. And so I think it says both in the, uh, in the 19, uh, in the 2014 edition. And then we did, then they sent a, uh, uh, that that was done like in 2013. Then they sent a video crew closer to the publication of the uh, of the book, and we did some video for them. We just did a, some new video for them on uh, May the fourth. So that was uh, that was great fun too. Okay. Um, we probably have we talk about upwards of 400,000 items in the collection. So not only do we have a 9,000 square foot um, um, former chicken barn or two chicken barns or actually three chicken <laughs> barns <laughs> um which, it's more than which, two which used to have house egg laying hens um we also have uh about seven thousand square feet of storage space in downtown petaluma for uh the excess of the collection and it's where we do the sorting and and things of that nature so wow. there's a lot of square footage that's devoted to star wars stuff Got it. Got it. Well, I, I can speak as a from a fan's perspective. Um, visiting Rancho Obi Wan is is it's like visiting the Sistine Chapel or Mecca or, you know, it, it's it's just such a special 
place. And Scott, I know you haven't been there, but when you when you you pull up to the house, it, it it looks like a residence, and you walk up, and you're going, I've seen these pictures of the interior of a museum, like, and you're walking up, and it doesn't look like that, and then you walk in, and it's like, ah, you know, it's like this <laughs> magic happens, and then there literally is a moment when the our the, our docent who I um. I think we had Mark Morita, yeah, who's such a cool guy too. He I, is. I'm friends with him. He's been on this show. Uh, opens up the door, and the Star Wars music, the, the the main title theme comes on, and you see the expanse of the of the. It's it's just I'll never forget that moment. It's like being in the theater for the first time or something. It's well, it's we crazy worked how on. Cool it yeah, I mean one of one of my uh, one of my. Uh, uh, um, gets was to have a couple of dramatic reveals in the museum. The museum started out in one, uh, we moved to Northern California in 1998. So I started working for Lucasfilm in 96, but in 96, I worked out of the house in LA. In 97, uh, I commuted almost every week from Los Angeles on Monday and then back to Los Angeles on Friday. Um, and lived in a corporate apartment up in uh, in uh, Northern California near the ranch. And um, but ninety eight, the summer of ninety eight, we moved up to Northern California, and I was looking for a nice house, but I was also looking for space for the collection. Mm -hmm. And so the property that became Rancho Obi Wan wasn't even on the market, and uh, I had passed by it. Uh, a couple of times and saw these long buildings and wondered what the heck and the, boy, I wish something like this was for sale because the real estate guy knew what I was talking about, but um, it, it was really hard to find something. And then it turned out that this house had been on the market early in the year. The property had been on the market, but it had been taken off because there were a lot of problems with it. And it would have gone into foreclosure um, a couple of months after I bought it if I hadn't bought it. And I walked in, the house had been remodeled in 87, it was in great shape, mm -hmm. and the barns had been used as a manufacturing facility for equipment to make cabinets, mm. for cabinet oh. makers. Okay. Yeah. So uh, there was, uh, it was totally unfinished, there, there were no walls, I mean it was all the outside, uh, um, you know, you could see the spaces, there, had, there were no interior walls. Um, there was three-phase uh, power. There was uh, hydraulics. I mean, it was all kinds of stuff. But all I saw was the space, and the hair on my arm just went <laughs> started started going up. And yeah. uh, when I walked through that door, and so we spent about uh, six months fixing it up to be sort of a warehouse, but a nice warehouse. And uh, so from 1998. Uh, it took about the, to the spring of 99 before I could start to put stuff on the shelves, bought a lot of the heavy racking shelves. Mm -hmm. And then um, would have friends over and fellow members of the 501st Legion. And so people were visiting, but it was just catch as catch can. And then towards uh, 2010 or so, I knew I'd be retiring from Lucasfilm in the not-too-distant future, and uh, that's when we decided to make Rancho Obi-Wan 
a nonprofit 501c3 and to actually structure it as a museum and add a an addition to it. So the uh, the second building, the second barn became our addition and it became our art gallery or our arcade. I mean, we needed we had some really big pieces that there was no place to display. So I just made that decision that, uh, okay, this is the direction I go. So here's my third career. So from uh, <laughs> newspaper reporter and editor to marketing guy to museum person. Yeah. And um, it's all had a theme of um, basically it's all had a theme of storytelling because the museum people ask me how the museum is set up. Is it set up by individual movie or by time frame or it's set up in story fashion. So you go from one object to another and you can tell stories about them and the stories sort of follow naturally, even if the objects don't. Yeah. Yeah, and there's there's definitely a logical flow, and I can see your logic when you talk about storytelling as you walk into the museum and then towards the end, the end of the museum is, or the last part of it is, is the sort of like the almost dedicated to the fan community in a way because you, you, there's, you know, you've got a lot of the fan art back there. Um, and again, I have to say you were you were so kind uh, and generous to my family when we visited. And my my son made the the portrait of Princess Leia and buttons. Uh, and and you, as soon as you said that to me, I went, <laughs> "What?" I said, "You have a picture of that?" And you yeah. showed me a picture of that, and I said, "Um." Is anything like that for sale? <laughs> <laughs> that was that was his first sell. Uh, he said, it's hanging in a gallery right now. I said, well, I'm so cool. interested. <laughs> That's so amazing. What is it about the fan creations that, that mean so much to you? That's where my passion has been really in collecting for the last 10 or 15 years. Um, by going out and, and, and being such a uh, a part of the fan community and being such a big fan myself um, or as as George said on this poster that he signed for me that I'm looking at right now to Steve the ultimate fan um, uh, Star Wars is unlike any other of the genre movies or book series unlike even Star Trek or um, um, Lord of the Rings or the Marvel movies. I mean, in the early years, we had the, the Star Wars zines, the fan fiction. And, of course, there was a lot of Star Trek zines back then, too. Um, and the Star Wars zines came off of the Star Trek zines. But what I have found is that as far as art and three-dimensional projects and costuming, um, the Star Wars fan community has taken such an integral role in playing in George's sandbox, and Lucasfilm has been smart enough to let them um, mm -hmm. through that, through fan films, uh, when other movie companies were shutting down fan films online in the early days of the internet, Lucasfilm was, okay, we've got some rules, but okay, we're going to even have a fan film contest to uh, bring you into part of the company and bring you into the into the whole mix and uh, I thought that was a brilliant way to handle things and um, 
and so I love fan-made objects and flea market finds and and just all kinds of things like that. that it's so cool. It's so cool to see all that. Um, do you remember the first item you collected? Well, the very first thing I the very first item I collected was something that had come to the Wall Street Journal newsroom in early 1977, and it was a bid booklet to um, run Star Wars in the theaters. And so it was full of color pictures and stories about the characters. And um, the guy who covered the movie business got it, and he was looking through it, and I was sort of slobbering and looking over his shoulder. And uh, after he was finished with it, he tossed it in his trash can. And I waited till he left for the day until all the other reporters left because they were gabbers. And I just sort of tiptoed over to his wastebasket. And that was my first dumpster diving for Star you Wars. But not diving. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. Uh, can, can you share a little bit about some of your favorite items? And oh, by the way, before we go there, I think you showed us that on the tour. Is that part of the tour? Maybe it's in the library. That the yes. that first, yeah, yes. I remember that pamph that the booklet. Um, sorry, I just had to verify that that was true. Can you share? What are some of your favorite items? Um, I we you know we've obviously we being fans we know about the 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 rocket launching Boba Fett miniature that you know you you've got at least one of in your collection that's one of the most rare figures two Two. okay all right (laughs) the unpainted one and the painted one the eight-sided missile and the four-sided missile (laughs) that's it's 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 amazing to see you handling those in images and uh you know i'm like don't don't drop it i told told the story on the uh on the live stream of seth green punking me once when he was here and said you know, can I uh, can I touch one of those? And I said, only for you, Seth, while I open this case. And I open the case, and and he holds it in one hand, and he looks like he's about to shoot off the missile with his oh. other finger. And he said, so you just push this tab down like, and I said, no, and he said, gotcha. that sounds like something seth green would try to pull my favorite piece in the collection and the thing you know what would you go first for in an earthquake or a fire or something like that there's there's something that really ties the collection and me and what i did at lucasfilm and the whole fan community together and it's a canvas banner that's about seven feet long and it has an original version of the Star Wars logo that's very unusual, um, hand-painted by Joe Johnston, who went on to become a famous director. But uh, it was done um, in, in his days when he was art director at ILM. And it uses the Ralph McQuarrie uh, art of Starkiller, which was a, sort of the composite character um that uh, became mostly luke but had a little bit of han a little bit of obi-wan in him and it's from a cut out from a t-shirt so and sewed on to the banner and it's this black background banner and blue and the star wars logo and this was used in 1976 a year before star wars came out to do several fan conventions and one Notably uh, in uh, in San Diego, the San Diego Comic-Con, which was then in its sixth year, seventh convention, and one in Kansas City, Worldcon. So we have some pictures of both the banner at San Diego and the banner at Worldcon. And um, 
this was the very beginning of fan relations for everybody, I think. I mean, you know, in the 30s, there were, you know, uh, Captain Marvel or Buck Rogers uh, decoder rings and things like that that you could send away for, but really not a fan club as such. They called them fan clubs, but there wasn't very much to it. But this really started fan clubs uh, and and the whole idea of fan clubs in the in the 70s. Or restarted the idea of fan clubs, at least, and um, it went on from uh, then uh, uh, four issues of a newsletter that were licensed out, and then Lucasfilm brought it in internally, and it was named Bantha Tracks, and that went on until 1987, and then Dan Madsen decided that he would make a bid to run an actual magazine, and so Insider came out of that. I still, I still have many of my Bantha tracks. I, I oh, love, those cool. love those so much. Yeah, and I know the banner you're talking about, Steve. It's when you, when you walk into the main room. It's up on the left on the wall, and you see it in all those old pictures. Uh, yeah, with that triangle logo that a lot of the guys were were wearing on their shirt. I didn't know that that was sewn on there. That's that yeah. was that's cool. That's a great little fact. Um, so. There are you guys offer tours of, of Rancho Obi Wan and I I've done one myself. It's it's absolutely every Star Wars fan needs to make their trek out to Mecca. Uh, translation Petaluma, California, and, and get out to Rancho Obi Wan. My biggest regret was not being able to go with you on that trip, man. Uh, we'll we'll do it. We'll do it again, Scott. We've, but, had, so, uh, we've had visitors from all over the world from yeah. Ranging from Vietnam to Russia to uh, Dubai, I mean, and then more more common places like Finland and New Zealand, and but <laughs> all over the United States and Canada, Mexico, South America. I mean, just just about. We had somebody here who was once in the uh, uh, Antarctic, so <laughs> station wow. in the Antarctic. So we could, but. but not at that point. So we can't say seven continents. <laughs> so when I was on the tour, there was a guy with us from New Zealand and I, we sort of, you know, became chummy during the tour and sense of become Facebook friends. And that's part of the, you know, what's so cool about star Wars too, is the community is just, everybody's so, to a person. Almost everybody is so cool and welcoming and just, they just want to connect with one another. Right. And so, I wanted to ask, so I've seen the, some, a little bit about the virtual tours that you guys are doing during the COVID-19 pandemic. How, how are you making Rancho Obi-Wan accessible to fans? Well, we had talked for a long time about doing something online. And when we had to shut down in March, and it became obvious that we had no idea how long we were going to be shut down, um, we uh, hurried into uh, starting our virtual museum. And so Anne and I have been taking lots of videos and we have, uh, we have a uh, uh, five subscription level um, uh, entry into the virtual museum. And so every week we post new content. So it's about the collectibles themselves. It's about unboxing. It's about uh, rancho um, memorabilia, rancho events, um, my life story from uh, the Philadelphia Inquirer to writing books to Lucasfilm to running Rancho Obi-Wan, 
hidden places in Rancho Obi-Wan, like in the stacks, uh, in the loft, things that you never get to see on a tour. Um, and, uh, we do, uh, uh, we do a, uh, a, uh, video scouting the galaxy where we have people send in questions about collectibles and I answered the questions. And so, uh, it's something to help us. None of the, none of the money that we raise for the nonprofit goes into buying objects for the museum. That's all my personal collection. Sometimes we get contributions to the museum, like Sideshow um, contributed many years ago a, a, a full-size uh, Darth Malgus mannequin, which is uh, pretty awesome. And so that's that becomes part of the body of what the museum owns, but everything else is uh, is my stuff. And what we use, what we raise for the museum pays for um, renting of our warehouse, uh, security, um, uh, just all insurance, um, doing the uh, taxes. I mean, all the things that you have to worry about when running a business. And and things are obviously a lot tighter these days, and we can't have our weekly tours. So uh, we couldn't have our uh, uh, our gala that we planned for June. Um, we didn't have our store at Celebration that we had hoped for. So things are, um, you know, things are different this year for so many nonprofits, and that includes us too. Yeah, so you've got the five-tiered sort of um, membership uh, virtual tour that you can that you can that fans can partake in and right. then isn't there's a there's a you can become a um, you can become a, a supporting a, member of Rancho yes. Obi-Wan yes thank you. Uh, by subscribing and people we get annual subscriptions and you get a nice little uh, uh, pack uh, with our exclusive patch and your second year and every year thereafter a pin acknowledging your membership level and a letter and you know other kinds of goodies that uh, and then we have a, an online shop so we we still have a sale going on there that uh, people can get so it's all at ranchoobiwan.org you can get to the virtual museum subscribe to rancho obiwan become a supporting subscriber and uh, see what merchandise we have and and it's 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 a great way to continue to support Star Wars fandom and and the um, the thing that we love so much that that for for guys my age and and Scott's age you know we grew up in the 70s and 80s and uh, well I grew up in the 70s Scott in the in the 80s uh, but uh, <laughs> a little I, bit older than you I was there I just don't remember the 70s that well that's right. all. that's that's fair <laughs> uh, but it's a you know it's a great way to keep this the franchise alive that that has meant so much to us. Um, um, for so many years and, and just to support fandom in the way that you do Steve through this, uh, I would love if, if all of our listeners would, would consider going at least, go to ranchobiwan.org and check it out and become a member. Think about becoming a member or subscribing to this. It's a very worthwhile cause. Um, and we certainly, certainly support and would love to support anything you guys have going on, Steve. And we look forward to being able to open up again, and um, and we're talking about doing other virtual events, so uh, stay tuned for that. Um, we have we're active on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Um, 
uh, and uh, we'll make any kind of announcements in all three places. Um, but, you know, once again, it's sort of service to the fan community, fellow collectors, and even people who aren't collectors. I mean, one of one of the joys I get is when um, a, a dyed-in-the-wool collector comes to visit and brings his or her spouse. And very often it's the it's the woman who is the collector and the spouse, the husband, is, is just sort of the bring-along. And uh, sometimes reluctantly, um, but undoubtedly, 99 times out of 100 at the end of the tour, the non-collector is going to say, I had no idea. This was really fun. And so it's that's my kind of joy and excitement about bringing them in and telling them the stories. It's not just about the stuff and seeing the stuff and how much is that worth. And it's not about that at all. It's about telling the stories of how things were acquired, how how silly things are. I mean, we've got a lot of uh, non-authorized uh, uh, and fan-made uh, items here. Well, some of that stuff um, is really interesting. And, and it's fascinating stuff it really what is. people have done over the years and the fun that they've had with Star Wars and and the, and the great stories behind some of the objects. Um, so uh, it, it's, it's all about an experience and this two- to three-hour experience um, of yep. coming to Rancho Obi-Wan that now we're laying out bit by bit in our virtual museum. Hey, Steve, you mentioned the social media platforms. You guys have really stepped your social media game up. Uh, who, who owns those? Who, who runs the, your social media? Is that Ann Newman doing that? No, Anne, Anne does everything else. Yeah, I was going to say, she's <laughs> Anne, jack of all Anne's trades. the she's vice president and curator of the museum, and okay. she, she, she does all the video for me. Um, and uh, Concetta Parker does uh, ah. Instagram and Twitter, and Wes Anderson does our Facebook and has been doing that um, for several years now. And uh, and then Concetta takes care of getting some of the Facebook stuff on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, I'm not I'm not the the most uh, expert person on Instagram and Twitter. Facebook uh, is more my speed, but. Uh, We've got a team behind us, and that really uh, is very, very helpful. That That is awesome. Now, Steve, just one last thing I have to mention. You know, Scott has quite a collection. You should see Scott's garage. Is <laughs> You can barely walk through Scott's garage. It's mostly Star Wars stuff. And on the show, we, we, jo- we call it Rancho Obi-Wan South. <laughs> and uh, so, Scott, I, I do you want to... what Steve's talking about here. I, I'm not a fan at all. I'm... Mm. Yeah, he's his his house is. Wait a second! Uh, what was? Wait a second! Wait a second! I've got to see what that was again. You were sipping out of an arcade. It's yeah. the the Star Wars Tiki Mug Arcade oh. just came out in August uh, from Geeky Tiki, and then oh. my son knows what a fan I am. He made me this Darth Vader origami character. <laughs> Keep them all here at my Tiki Bar, and I have to wear the shag. Tiki shirt. Uh, the shag stuff is great. Oh, yeah. I love it. So, so hope hope that we don't offend by joking about Scott's garage, calling it Ranch Obi Wan South. Please don't sue us. 
<laughs> I I probably won't as long as Lucasfilm doesn't sue me. Uh, we have an agreement though. They're they're happy with Rancho Obi Wan and they've used Rancho Obi Wan and Disney has used Rancho Obi Wan. So I think we're safe for a while. <laughs> I think you're okay, Steve. I, I, I did want to add in there. Um, <clears throat> you mentioned about that being it's it, the collection and people talk about the value and stuff, but you you said that about the stories and that's what's always stuck with me is being a lifelong fan. Being a kid and going to see that movie for the first time in in 77 and just being involved in so many people's lives and meeting new people all the time. That's where I always find the best joy. Like I get the most excitement out of this and just uh, and and it's just something that's been there forever. And it's it doesn't go away. And I really love that. That's why celebrations are so successful is is being able to get back and and meet people that you that you really don't get to see very often and maybe only at a celebration. But people fly in from all over from Europe. And and then we've had several celebrations in Europe and Americans have flown over there. Um, And it's it's really one big fan community. And it's been a little um, roughness. At, at times online, um, but um, I think for the vast majority of Star Wars fans are uh, good-hearted. They don't have to love every single thing that's Star Wars, but they can pick and choose. There's so many points of entry. There's so many great books that are still coming out. Um, television now, streaming, um, the movies themselves. There'll be more movies to come. I mean, there's always a bright future there for Star Wars fans, and um, and we and we see all kinds of age groups that are interested in Star Wars, and that's why, you know, the the TV has been so important and the streaming has been so important, and God love the child, <laughs> baby <No>. Yoda, <laughs> baby Yoda. I'm where I got my shirt on today, uh, Steve. We're at time, thirty seconds. What do you think about The Mandalorian? I love The Mandalorian. I'm really anxious for season two. Um, uh, I think we're going to see a lot of, uh, now that everything has sort of been established and he's got the child with him, I think we're going to see a lot of fun stories in in different directions. And they have an amazing technology set up to to, uh, do this show. And I'm so thrilled that they were able to complete everything before the pandemic shut it all down. We may have a little longer to wait for season three, but uh, season two is going to really, really come at a very important time for all of us. Steve Sansweet with Rancho Obi-Wan. Thank you so much for joining us on the Wretched Hive podcast. We are huge fans and we bow to you, sir. Thank you so much. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Scott.